Welcome to Industry Roundtable with Roger Reiswick. I'm Roger Reiswick, Fellow and Vice President of Industry Relations at Johnson Controls. In this series, I will host leaders in the industry to explore fire and life safety issues that matter to you. Today, my guest is Chris Jelenowitz. Chris is the Technical Director at the Society of Fire Protection Engineers, or SFPE. Welcome, Chris. Hey, Roger. Hey, uh, thanks for inviting me uh, to this podcast. And I'd like to start out by congratulating you on starting this podcast. I think this is going to be a great tool for the fire safety community to get the word out about, you know, important issues in our profession. I appreciate that, Chris. And it's bringing on guests like you that I think have made it uh, a hit so far, if you will. But with that, could you tell our listeners a little bit about SFPE and your position there? Not everybody might be as familiar with the organization. As leaders in engineering a fire-safe world, SFPE is basically the professional association that represents fire protection engineers throughout the world. We have over 4,500 members and 100 chapters throughout the globe, and Basically, the primary focus of SFPE is on a few important things that are important to fire protection engineers. For example, we focus on the credentialing of fire protection engineers. We establish the core competencies for practitioners, and we even write the questions that are part of the PE exam in fire protection engineering, which is the licensing exam for people who practice in our profession. Uh, We're also... uh, technical resource of technical content for practicing fire protection engineers, such as the SFP Handbook of Fire Protection Engineering, which is the body of knowledge in our profession. And then we also develop training courses to assist our members uh, continued growth throughout their careers that includes educational courses and conferences. At SFPE, uh, I am the technical director and I'm responsible for developing uh, engineering guides and standards along with our technical committees. I'm the technical editor of Fire Protection Engineering Magazine, which is a SFP's magazine that provides a lot of practical information to fire protection engineers. I work uh, as the editor of the SFP Handbook now and uh, also an associate director of Fire Technology, uh, SFP's technical journal. And then I also uh, represent SAP on codes and standards committee. Fantastic. You know, Chris, as a follow-up to that, our, our listeners might not know, can anybody become a member of SFPE, or do you have to be a fire protection engineer to be a member? Yes, that's a great question, Roger. Uh, yeah, anybody could be a member of SFPE. All you need to go is uh, to our website at www.sfpe.org, and there's a simple instructions on how to become a member. But uh, you don't even need to be a practicing fire protection engineer. It could be anybody who's really interested in uh, the issue of fire safety. That's great to get that word out. And there's a lot of great information that comes out from SFPE that I think everybody could utilize, not just the uh, fire protection engineering community. So with that, you're one of the uh, leading experts that I think of or turn to when we talk about performance-based design. Uh, For some people, I think it's a new term or a different way maybe of looking at how things could be done. You've written about the subject and uh, and some other things, but to start out, what exactly does the code intend when it speaks of performance-based designs? Well, when we're talking about designing a building, 
Roger, there are times when the building we are designing doesn't exactly fit into how the existing codes and standards require. And I'm not really talking about designing maybe a four-story hotel or a strip shopping mall, like a common type of building, but buildings where there's very unique design issues or hazards. And in these cases, as fire protection engineers, we come up with some sort of alternative means to provide an adequate level of life safety in the building. And it's performance-based design that really provides the framework on how we provide an adequate level of fire safety in these unique situations. And specifically, as part of this framework, we are implementing a building-specific approach that is really based on the characteristics of the building we're designing, the occupants that are inside the building, and the fire that the fire engineers will estimate that's part of this performance-based design. And one of the things that makes performance-based design unique is that the fire safety goals for that building are really established by the building stakeholders. So, for example, in any building we design, we should always have a life safety goal, a property protection goal, and maybe even protection of the environment that is really, you know, decided by the stakeholders, but there could be also other goals like uh, maybe related to historic preservation, continuity of operations, operational considerations, or even testing and maintenance of systems. And I think the second unique thing about performance design is that it's based on fire scenarios. What are the probable fire scenarios we would see in the building that we are designing? Maybe this fire scenario could be the area we think has the highest probability of having a fire, or maybe it's the area with the largest hazard or the largest room that we're looking at. The final unique thing I would say about performance-based design is that the engineer really has the opportunity to get to use all the cool engineering tools we have, things like computer models and methodologies and risk analysis and stuff like that. So with that, you talked about performance-based design and the building codes. Is performance-based design terminology used in NFPA and the I codes? Uh, yes, it is. But before I kind of get into that, I'd like everybody to know, first of all, that Every code has some kind of allowance for performance-based design, and that really comes in the alternate means and methods section. Uh, so usually in the first chapter of a standard or a code, it would say, hey, there are times when an alternative can be used. So that's always there and part of the codes. And a lot of people think that performance-based design has been around for just the last few years, because it's kind of buzzword that's popping up, but actually, performance-based design has been here as long as we've had building codes. Now, to get specific about your question, when we're looking at NFPA, for example, NFPA 101, the Life Safety Code, NFPA 5000 are really good examples that have specific performance-based options embedded in these codes. Uh, another great example that people don't really think about a lot is Annex B in NFPA 72. When you specifically read in that Annex B of 
NFPA 72, and we're talking about spacing of detectors, it specifically mentions these fire scenarios I talked about, and it gives examples of how you match these fire scenarios up with the, the unique building characteristics, the unique occupant characteristics, and the fire characteristics themselves. Now, ICC, uh, they've had a performance code in existence for quite some time now, and although that's not used that much in practice, uh, there is also an alternate means and methods section in the ICC or the International Building Code. And just recently, the SFPE ICC Working Group succeeded in submitting a co-proposal to the next edition of the IBC that would provide a new appendix that lays out important issues for code officials to consider when they're faced with a performance-based design. So I think we're looking forward at the next edition of IBC. You know, it's going to be a lot easier for a code official who wants to, to try using a performance-based design. Uh, other codes and standards, uh, ASCE SEI 7, uh, in the recent edition, added a performance-based approach for designing fire resistance in a building. Uh, so that's an important new thing in the industry right now. So when we look at performance-based design, we don't want to lessen a life safety for the occupants or for the facility. Uh, we want to use it as an, maybe an alternate way. So when would someone then use a performance-based design over what's already prescribed within the building codes and building standards? Well, as I mentioned earlier, you're really talking about buildings that have unique features. So I'm talking about unusual buildings like the casinos you would see in a Las Vegas strip. You know, just walking down the strip there in Las Vegas, you're going to see a lot of inter interesting-looking buildings. And a lot of times, it's not the easiest way to design a building by going by strictly with the prescriptive codes. Uh, for example, you see buildings where you're seeing indoor space look like outdoor space and things like that. Maybe buildings like large stadiums or arenas. And of course, very tall buildings is one area where we see a lot of performance-based design used. Even when we're implementing everything through a prescriptive code, there's always some kind of prescriptive aspect to it when we're doing a performance-based design. So for example, designing the evacuation plan in a building, the prescriptive codes don't tell you exactly how to do that, so you definitely need some kind of engineering analysis that's, once again, based on the building characteristics, the occupant characteristics, and the fire characteristics that we perceive might happen in this building. So if you're making the decision, if you want to use maybe even an emergency evacuation elevator, you need to provide some kind of analysis to show that that fire protection system as a whole, will work for the building. We also see a, used a lot in uh, structural engineering design now, smoke control systems. If you're uh, designing a system in accordance with NFPA 72, that is basically a performance-based standard. You know, listening to your first podcast with Jim Milkey from the University of Maryland, he discussed a lot of different ways FPEs design smoke control systems and all those approaches have some kind of performance-based aspect. We're also seeing it used a lot in tunnels because of the unusual high 
fire loading you could see in a tunnel, and also because of the unique evacuation considerations. Uh, and another way might be historic structures. Because when you're designing a historical structure, a lot of times it's really hard to implement uh, code requirements uh, for a totally new building into the design of a historic structure. So that's where a really good performance-based analysis could give you the best fire protection for that kind of structure. Okay. Uh, and thank you for the plug there for the other podcast. Uh, you know, something for our listeners, I think, maybe just to kind of reiterate is, um, you know, these terms are kind of, I think, maybe new to some people out there in our listening audience. And I know engineers kind of cringe when this term is used, but sometimes we'll hear the term value engineering uh, when we do projects. And value engineering really is different from performance-based design, correct? You know, Roger, that's a great question because I hear this topic come up a lot when we talk about performance-based design. And actually, I would almost say by definition, in a way, performance-based design is value engineering. If performance-based design is done correctly, you should be providing the best fire protection that would also probably have some kind of cost-effectiveness to the design. But at the same time, this really shouldn't be a tool that is used at the end of the project to get a designer or a contract out of doing an important code requirement that may have been missed until the end of the project. And that's where I would say could be a big no-no. That's a great point. That's a, that's a good way how you pulled them together. I like that analogy and, and how it ties together. So as we're talking about this then, and we've been talking about performance-based designs and the uh, person can use you know, various tools as you talk about them in their bag of tricks. So who's really qualified to design these systems and what qualifications would they need to have? In the United States, it's licensed fire protection engineers. Without a doubt, to do any type of performance-based design legally, you would need to be required to have a licensed fire protection engineer do that project. Specifically, you really need somebody who can understand fire dynamics, fire models, human behavior, system design, risk assessment methods. And because fire protection engineers need a full understanding on how to implement these tools, it's important we use licensed fire protection engineers. So, for example, when we're using things like computer models, these can be related to estimating the temperatures of a compartment fire or how long it takes the building occupants to evacuate the building, or even these models are used in smoke control design. The FPE really has to understand the science behind these models, not just understand how to use these models. Another important thing to note is maybe when we're talking to people outside the United States, a lot of the countries do not have a licensing program like we do in the United States. So I'd like to mention, to give a plug out, the SFPE publishes a competency model for fire protection engineers that can be found on our website, www.sfp.org, which lists the knowledge, skills, and abilities that are needed uh, to successfully practice in fire protection engineering. Very good. That's a great resource for, for people to have and then to fall and back on. And it's all on. free, too. And it's all free, too. What more do you yeah. want? So 
when we talk about performance-based design, uh, well, usually we take a regular design, let's take a sprinkler system or fire alarm system. We use the applicable codes, uh, whether it's NFPA 101 or the I code, uh, and then we use NFPA 13 or 72 for sprinkler or for fire alarm, and then we submit it to the AHGA, Authority Heaven Jurisdiction, and plans review, and they approve it or tell me if I'm deficient in anything. How does that process or does it change differently when I send a performance-based design to an AHJ for approval or plans review for approval? How does that maybe differ or not differ from the regular process? Well, earlier I talked about all the positives behind performance-based design. And I would say, without a doubt, maybe one of the downfalls or negatives is that it takes much more time to review a performance-based design than it would a prescriptive design because you're usually seeing a lot of different calculations and you're analyzing data and the outputs from computer models and things like that. So I would say it definitely takes a lot more time and at the same time, the competency of the person reviewing the design should be similar to the qualifications that I discussed before for the person that's actually doing the design. So that might be difficult for some AHJs, especially we know that all AHJs are code officials. You know, one of their biggest resources, without a doubt, is time. So how do we get this extra work done to be able to adequately review this design? And this is where peer review comes to play. Because performance-based design takes longer HJs, code officials, sometimes seek a peer reviewer to do this review. So I think that's an important tool the AHJ could use is having a different fire protection engineer come in and do a peer review of this design. And that's actually another free guide you can get from SFPE's website is our uh, guide for peer review in the fire protection design process which really provides the steps that are needed to adequately conduct a peer review. And it also has a great discussion on the ethics that are involved, how to document a peer review, and what are the qualifications needed for a peer reviewer. Very good. I've also been involved in some projects where we've had the um, engineer of record, the FPE, actually go with us to the AHJ, and rather than just hand them the document and walk away and say, here, review it, kind of explain the process about how we designed it, how we got to where we uh, came from with our performance-based design, and how we came up with the final answer. And uh, that seems to help as well, rather than just throwing it over the fence and say, here, review this. Yeah, you raise an interesting point there. I think another important aspect of performance-based design is that the, the fire protection engineer should be involved throughout the whole process. It should start when you're originally planning the project all the way through putting together your design and all the way through the end of construction. It's important to have the fire protection engineer participate in this process to make it successful. That's a great point, great point. So I know we're running out of time here. How about a, well, one last question here, if you could kind of wrap this up. Is there a typical system or application that you see that might be more commonly using performance-based design methods than others? There are a few. Um, without a doubt, smoke control, I think, is the one area we're seeing 
aspects of performance-based design being used in a project. Before I mention Annex B and NFPA 72, um, another area, interesting area related to systems that we're seeing people have a conversation about now is the inspection and testing program for systems. Kind of like a hot topic now in performance-based design. Um, and this specifically, I think, is a good alternative when you're an owner of a large campus of buildings, for example, a college of universities. You know, when you look through standards like NFPA 13 or NFPA 72, our NFPA 25, the testing requirements are huge. And for a building owner that's really tasked with having to do that for maybe 300 or 400 systems that they're responsible for can be very difficult. And in this case, we're really seeing engineers and come and look at the systems that are on a specific campus and take a look and say, hey, let's use our resources for the best. And that way, we could be testing and using our funds for testing to make sure that we're providing the best testing possible. So I think that's something to to think about in the future. Yeah, that's a great point you just brought out about that the performance-based design is not necessarily just pigeonholed into equipment or how it might be applied to a facility but it could have to do with no equipment uh, involved and a performance-based design on what is the best way to maybe test this building or do an integrated test with other systems, or if it's a facility that might be you know, hard to get to uh, commonly, a performance-based design could be wrapped around the testing and not necessarily just defined to applications or systems. That's a great point. Yeah, I think that's something we'll be seeing a lot more in the future. Well, Chris, our time here is coming to a close, and I just really want to thank you for helping out today and going through performance-based design, dispelling some of the myths, and helping to get some of the uh, information out to our audience, and you did a very good job with that, as always, and I thank you very much for doing that for me today. Hey, Roger, it was my pleasure, and once again, uh, good luck with your podcast. I, I think it's going to be a lot of fun for us out in the fire protection community as we wait to see the next podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of Industry Roundtable. Be on the lookout for more podcasts in the coming weeks covering a range of fire and life safety related topics.